Amen. If you would, grab your copy of Scripture and open to the book of 2 Timothy, Paul's final letter, as he has uh, come to the end of his life and ministry, and he's penning the words of 2 Timothy, and I'm just going to be realistic with you tonight as we're getting started, okay? I know that scares you when I say that. I, I don't mean to scare you. Our goal tonight is going to be to get to Second Timothy, all right? But it's okay if we if we don't, we'll we'll just do part three. The problem with this sermon is is that it just keeps growing, and the pro the thing about it is is you give me too much time to think about it, and so I had last Sunday night off, and now it's yeah, and it just keeps going and going and going. So we'll make some headway tonight, and we'll do our best to get to Second Timothy. But if we don't get there, that's okay because all the verses will come up on the screen. And you'll be able to follow. So if you remember correctly, we started two weeks ago this conversation about the church. And uh, I really uh, feel a deep uh, passion that the people of God's church uh, need to invest more time specifically in just thanking Him and adoring Him for what He has done and the gift of the church to us as His people. And... I'm just so overwhelmed uh, at um, in, in my own heart as I think about that. The first time I ever heard that song, I just wept. I just cried like a baby because I was just so overwhelmed by my inadequacy and God's graciousness and His goodness. And it's all Him. He did it all. I didn't do anything. And I didn't deserve anything but but death and condemnation and He and His grace and mercy just poured out His glory on my life. And all I can do is just say, thank you. Thank you, God, for what you've done and what that does in our hearts. And I hope that that never gets old for us to say that. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word, God. Now I pray that You will give me grace to preach it, Lord God. I thank You for... Uh, what it has accomplished in my heart. And now I pray, Father, that you will uh, take control of my mouth. And Lord God, you'll manifest your presence here through your spoken word in such a way that it will impact the hearts in this room. I'm very grateful for the opportunity we have to proclaim it and to hear it. And God, thank you for these people who love you. And God, may they be greatly edified through your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to read something to you. Uh, It's entitled, The Church, My Life. In 1932, I lived in Isabel, Kansas, next door to a small Methodist church. I remember being in the church, and the pastor was making a knocking motion and saying that a man named Jesus was wanting to come into the door. The snow was up to the windows, and I wanted someone to let him in. I was three years old. This alerted me to pay attention that when I was in church, I needed to hunt for this Jesus. We attended church uh, wherever we lived, and in 1940, I accepted Christ's invitation to follow Him. In 1944, my father died, and my mother had to begin working evenings and nights in hospitals. My brother was in the Navy. The church came to my aid. Youth programs contacted me and transported me when needed. Baptist, Methodist, and Presbyterian. They cared. 
for me and made me feel safe. In 1947, a 17-year-old goes to New Orleans to study nursing. I knew no one. I was invited to First Baptist Church and was accepted as a sister in Christ. As large as that church was, I was always greeted at the door by someone who knew my name. If we worked on Sunday, our Sunday school teacher would come to our dorm room and teach the lesson to us on Tuesdays. Nursing was administered uh, by the sisters of St. Vincent de Paul. They were certainly part of the church and cared for thousands of needy people. All of my years have been close to a church. My membership depended on where I lived along the coast. I was blessed with Christian parents and a husband. My children became Christians early in their lives. The church was my aid when I lost my parents and then my husband and then my son. The church was there for all who seek God's help if they know His Son, Jesus. He is knocking at the door. As a member of a church, group, or denomination, I experienced friction, unrest, and the occasional pastoral problems. Apparently they didn't go here. But the church is the body of Christ and endures, which enabled me to grow in His Spirit. After my memory of the church that began in 1932, I kept hearing about this Jesus and finally found the scripture I had heard that day from Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. I want the youth to cling to the church wherever they go and whatever they may face. To be a part of the body of Christ is my life. That's the testimony of Miss Louise over here. And I read that to you because it's uh, so uh, just perfect for this discussion that we're having about the church. When you hear the testimony of a saint of God that revolves around the church and how God uses the church and how we oftentimes get hung up on denomination, we get hung up on affiliation, we get hung up on and distracted by all these things that ought not distract us. What we need to remember is that God established the church and He put the church on this earth to serve as His body and to minister to the people to which He calls and He has promised that it will prevail. It will prevail. And there are many churches that are, are not good churches. And there are churches that have issues and problems and struggles. But what we need to remember is, is that it is God's church that He will use to minister to the people that He chooses to draw unto Him. And He'll use whatever means necessary to do that. And if we will begin to think about the church as this amazing gift that will watch over a, a young lady as she travels to New Orleans alone, knowing no one to go to nursing school. It's the church that steps in and cares for her. Guaranteed. I don't even need to know. I don't even need to check. I already can tell. I'm, I'm a prophet. Watch me predict the future. Most of the people that will be cared for due to the damages of the hurricane that has just hit the east coast of the United States will be from the church. It's, that's how this works. And the, the, the God of the universe established the church to step in. And, and the thing that makes a church a real church or a false church is not the name out on the sign. 
It's not the, the way people dress in the church. It's not the songs they sing. It's not the things that they do. It's the gospel. And that's what we're talking about is the church and the gospel. And I want us to, to just uh, be reminded a little bit of the things that we started talking about and then we'll uh, press forward. We started with 2 Corinthians 11.28 where Paul makes the statement that besides other things, what comes upon me daily is my deep concern for all the churches. And I told you that this word concern, it means anxiety, that Paul has anxiety. And at first, this almost seems like a confession of sin in Paul's life until you understand what he's saying. And, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, what really comforts me in this is besides the other things. Because as I uh, confessed to you two weeks ago, I often feel like I'm on snow skis hurling down the side of a mountain and just hanging on for dear life because that, that's, that's oftentimes what ministry is. That's oftentimes what the church is. Uh, it's, it's not something that you can uh, contain or control. It's, it's God's body it's his entity it's his mechanism working in this world and and we're uh just part of the process and as uh as he adds to it and as he grows it and does the things that only he can do we stand and marvel and uh, a lot of the concern i know that comes into my heart and probably i suspect this concern that was that comes into uh paul's heart is just uh lord you know Help us to be sure that we're doing what you'd have us to do to glorify you. Keep us, God, on the right track so that we're not, we're not chasing after our own desires. But, God, we're doing that which you have called us to do. So here's what we said. We, we made two statements and then we began asking questions. The first statement was that great ministry is often chaotic and messy. We talked in Acts chapter 6 about everything that was going on, thousands of people coming to Christ and the apostles struggling to try to handle the needs of the people and the establishment of, of deacons in order to administer to the needs of the people and to, to do the service to the, to the saints. And then the second statement we made is that great ministry often understands that God's gain can feel like our loss. And we talked for quite a while about the fact that the church is ascending uh, mechanism. It's a sending entity is that we need to be about sending people and God moves people as he sees fit. He grows us up and, and puts us in places of ministry and service for him. And then oftentimes we struggle with that. We want things to, we, we want us, we want to stay together, but that's not always God's call. God is a, is a sending God. He's a missionary God. He left heaven to come here and he expects us to be willing to leave at any time to serve him. And we talked in Acts 13 about how God uh, came and, and separated for himself Barnabas and Saul uh, to the work in which he had called them and how those whom uh, they were ministering with in Antioch must have felt at the time a great loss. But what happened was that the gospel went around the world through the Gentiles because of that one pivotal moment in time. Then we began asking questions. The first question we asked that we, we uh, feel is important for us to ask as a congregation is whose glory are we committed to? When we looked in Ephesians 1 and, and we saw that uh, the Bible says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And we, we know that we exist for the glory of God and not our own. Uh, we remember, I know that you've forgotten most of what I said, but if you were here, you undoubtedly remember the comment I made that it is as if 
God, according to 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 and 27, it is as if God is walking through the junkyard of this world, picking up the pieces that He chooses, and then He assembles that junk and makes a Lamborghini. That is His church. And that's when you all, you know, said that you were going to do that for me. And so we made that agreement, remember. And so just reminding you of what you said. Now, you know better than that. I mean, I would simply sell it so we could imagine the ministry work we could do with that money. So, anyway. The second question we asked is this. I probably can't even fit in a Lamborghini. Anyway, the second question I asked is this. Uh, whose plan are we committed to? God's plan is to redeem people. And it's important. We'll talk a little bit more about this when we get to uh, 2 Timothy. But it's not just any people, but it's a people for Him. And that He has a plan, and we don't need to start worrying about uh, our own plan. We don't need to start clamoring around for any brilliant ideas to uh, make the church operate in some wonderful form or fashion. But He's given us a plan to operate within, and He has given us some freedom within that. But He's laid out the essentials that we need. Um, We know that salvation comes through Christ alone. We know that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Um, And we understand these simple things. But we also need to understand that Ephesians 2, Paul outlines uh, this, what this looks like when he says in, in 2.19, he says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers or foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now listen, verse 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. That's a mouthful, but let me just summarize it for you real quickly. Things that are alive grow and things that grow change. You don't like that. That's good. Come on. If you're alive, you're going to grow. And if you grow, you're going to change. Now, I don't mean grow numerically. I just mean grow. The Bible says that we're going to grow. We're going to grow in the Lord. We're going to grow in wisdom. We're going to grow in godliness. And hopefully we're going to grow in number. We're going to grow in effectiveness. We're going to grow in impact. But this isn't about our plan to be big. That's not what this is about. It's about our plan to be alive with the Spirit of God. And one thing that we need to understand is that if we are alive, then we're going to grow. And if we grow, we're going to change. Not because we determined the change, not because we decided to change, but because that is the process. That's what Paul's telling us in Ephesians chapter 2. He's merely explaining to us that we are a body and that He is the head. So, whose glory are we committed to? Whose plan are we committed to? And now this is new information. The the third uh, question is, whose pleasure have we been gifted for? Now, our giftedness is a resource that is for the local church. It's something we have a hard time uh, reconciling in our mind in this culture. A lot of confusion about this out in the landscape of the modern American church world. Uh, We try to turn this around. Many people treat their giftedness uh, in this way. I mean, it's just the way it is. You know this to be true. Most people treat their giftedness as, well, whatever's left over 
I'll bring to the church. In other words, if I'm a great accountant out in the world, then if I have any energy, if, if my job's not too taxing, then I will take my extra time and I will use my accounting skills to help the church. If I'm a gifted musician, then I, you know, when I have time to practice or to play, then I will use my, my musical abilities for the church. If I am a builder, then if I happen to have a downtime in my, uh, you know, week or in my calendar, then I'll use my skills for the church. Or if I happen to be patient, if I'm gifted in, in patience, then I'll use my patience to teach children. If I happen to be compassionate and I have some extra time, then I might go visit people in the hospital. If I have the gift of encouragement, then I may... And it goes on and on and on. That is completely unbiblical. Completely. That is totally wrong. If you are born again, then you have been gifted and your giftedness is for the local church and the glory of God primarily, not secondarily. So any gifts and abilities that you have are to be used for the glory of God in the context of the local church. I know that you're not on board with me. I can tell by the look on your faces. So let's just read Scripture. See, people will come to me and they'll say things like, I don't have anything to offer. Now, I won't, I don't say this, but this is what I think. Don't tell the Sunday morning crowd this, okay? This is between us. When they say that to me, I always think, well, thank you for telling me that you're lost. Now I know how to pray for you. It's the truth. That's what the Bible says. 1 Peter 4.10 As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Real simple. If you're a believer, if you've been born again, you've been gifted. And that giftedness is to minister to one another and it is through the manifold grace of God. So if you say, I don't have anything to offer, then you are simply telling me or whoever you're talking to that you are not born again. See, to be, think, think about this statement, a good steward of the manifold grace of God. Just think about this for a second. What is a steward responsible for? A steward is responsible for another's resources. Right? And so if you're a good steward and you're responsible for another's resources, then a Christian is gifted for other people, is, is gifted for with, with his own gifts that are to be used in the context of other people. But God is the one who manages... All the gifts within the context of the church. Does that make sense? In other words, listen. You're gifted at salvation. That gift is to minister to other people. And as we're ministering to other people, we're to steward that gift through the leadership of the manifold grace of God. And so that's what goes on. So if you if you want to say, well... You know, pastor, then, you know, that's the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Okay, fine. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. Those gifts are to be used in the context of one another, in the context of a local 
body. That's what they're for primarily. And what we do is we take the gifts of the Spirit and the gifts that we, you know, all of our gifts, all of our talents, all of our passions, and the church seems to be the leftover place, which is really astonishing in light of what Scripture says. For example, what blesses my heart is when... uh, when I'm standing in the foyer on a Sunday morning and Miss Velma comes, because, cru- you know, when she walks, she's cruising. She comes cruising down there and comes out into the foyer and uh, she looks at me and says, pray for me. And I say, well, okay. And she said, I'm, I'm overwhelmed right now. And you know why she's overwhelmed? She didn't get the memo. Nobody told her there. What is the retirement age, Miss Thelma? Because apparently you missed it. I mean, isn't that in the bylaws somewhere? Well, here she is, overwhelmed. Why? Because she's teaching a Bible study on Revelation. And she told me, she said, I'm just behind the curve. And I'm thinking, well, praise God, I am too. But what blesses me is that she's still going. She's still overwhelmed. She's still pushing. I mean, that's what we're supposed to be doing. And and I'm thinking, how many people are on cruise control instead of being overwhelmed? Too many. Too many. You see, think about the think about the ramifications of not utilizing your giftedness in the context of the local church. Paul goes on in in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. He says this, From the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. You want the summary of that one too? Your gift outside the context of usefulness in the local church is of zero effect. Paul is saying it's useless. It's of no spiritual benefit. In other words, it's squandered. It's wasted. Don't you see that it's being knit together by every joint which supplies according to the effective working of what every part does doing its share causes growth of the body. So if the body grows... If the body's healthy and you're sitting on your gift, then you're not part of that. So your gift is of no effect. It's nullified. Now, I just... Seriously. That's scary to me. That that brothers and sisters that I love would just allow their giftedness to be nullified. Of no... no, no, no difference. It, it, it makes no impact. Now, I, I know I'm, I'm yelling at the, the, the remnant here. But man, I can't, uh, I can't just let all this go. I mean, we're going to be talking about this in the month of October. I'm just using you as a primer. I mean, we got to get with it. We, you, you're, you can't allow what God has gifted you to be nullified and of no effect. 
So you see, we grow, and again, not necessarily numerically, but we grow in Christ's likeness when each one does his part. And when you see a church that's healthy, the only way it can get there, the only, you can have the greatest preacher, the greatest speaker, you can have the greatest um, worship, you can have the greatest facilities, you can have, that won't do it. The only way to get there is when you have a multitude of people all utilizing their giftedness to come together, that's when the church flourishes. That's what it's all about. I mean, you think about things like intimacy and accountability and things of that nature and how they're refined only in the context of the local church. I mean, they're just, they're, they, that's where they operate in our lives. You know, apart from that, you, uh, you, you, take, you take me out of church, you take you out of church, and, and what immediately happens is we just begin to harbor and hide our wickedness and our sin. It, it, being out of church is, is guaranteed always going to lead to, eventually going to lead to the concealing of sin. Always. Because, see, there's no, there's no iron sharpening iron. There's no accountability. There's no, you know, you, when you're controlling the input, you're controlling. So you know, you think your flesh is dumb? Your flesh knows where conviction comes from, right? I mean, your flesh is like, you know, the guy speeding down the interstate with the super duper thousand dollar radar detector. That's your flesh. It knows where the police are. And so when the police come, you slow down and act like you're okay. And then when you get by, you go back to doing what you're doing. Well, what your flesh does is it knows where conviction comes into your life. And so it's just going to go around those areas. It's just going to go around them. And so first, you don't go to church. Then, what do you do? Then you figure out certain people. Well, I don't want to talk to them anymore. I mean, that's what happens to me. I mean, I have a lot of one-time conversations with people. And I know why. I don't want to talk about the weather. I don't want to talk about football. I want to talk about Jesus and why you're not in His church or in submission to His Word. That's what I want to talk about. That's what matters. So we need to, you know, ask these, these hard questions. Whose pleasure have we been gifted for? What, what is that about? You know, I love the, the quote by John Piper. He says, sanctification is a community project. I love that. I mean, it really happens in the context of community, in, in the body. That's how God designed it. You know, God knows best what we need. It's certainly not us. But He knows best. And so He gave us the church... Therefore, we can conclude that we need the church. We need the church. I know you know that. That's why you're here. I'm just encouraging you. Fourthly, what are we building our lives around? This is a healthy question for us to ask because a passionate person, a person who's passionate about the church is going to build their life around the church. You see, it, it's, it's burdensome to me over the, you know, over the span of of the 18 years that I've been here to, to be able to, to, to notice how things, trends sort of change in, in certain areas. And, and, you know, I don't know if it was just that I was young in the Lord and was just 
didn't know. I was just in this little bubble here at this church. I don't know. But it seemed like 18 years ago, in those first years of, of my infancy in Christ, that, you know, people tended to just sort of stay where they are. You know what I mean? But then something began to change. And now we're in this uh, strange time in church history where uh, it's just totally, you know, I mean, people will, will just go to different churches on different weekends for years and not be a member anywhere. And for years, I don't mean people that God's calling somewhere and they're looking for a church and they're obviously visiting a church and prayerfully considering where God would plant them. I'm just talking about just freelance Christianity. You know, you wake up in the morning and you just think, what do I feel like today? You know, let's, today we might, uh, I might feel like I'm kind of sleepy, so I might go to the charismatic church today. Or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, this, or I'm kind of that. And, and people, I mean, I talk to people, and they're telling me, you know, oh yeah, I'm a believer, and I, I love church, and I'm like, well, what, what church are you a member of? And they're like, oh, I just go to different churches. What? What do you mean you go to different church? I just float around. I just go where, where I feel, uh, you know, where I feel good that day. Hmm, okay. Paul says in Ephesians 1.22, uh, speaking of Jesus, that He put all things under His feet and gave Him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Now, here's my question. If you aren't into being a part of the church, committing yourself to a church, then basically what you're saying is, I'm not really interested in being a part of Christ. I'm not interested in planning myself and being part of what He's doing. This is His plan, His idea. Therefore, we've got to respond and we got to, we, we need to, as we talk with people that are out there in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, we need to think in terms of what the Bible says about the church. You know, we don't give our lives to be part of a church necessarily. What we really do is, is we give our lives to the church. In other words, we, when you, when you join Michael Memorial, the, the hope is, is that you build your life around this church. I mean, my entire family structure is built around this body. Everything we do pertains to this body. Every plan we make pertains to this body's plan and calendar. And it's been that way since my children were born. I mean, it, simple things just don't exist in my home. I mean, simple things like no one has ever said to me, do I have to go to church today? I've never heard that. Never. Not one time. It's all we know. It's all we know. It's everything. Every friend that they've had, every, every, if, if I got a piece of paper and I just started listing out all the people that are closest to me, they're all here. There's no one on the list that's not here. I don't pour my life out to anyone who's not here. Everything about my life is here. 
That's what the church, that's the role, the preeminence of the church in the life of a believer. And I believe that that's clearly backed up in Scripture. But now here's the danger. The danger is, is that what if I were talking to uh, at some church conference? You know, what if I weren't talking to you? What if I were talking to just a mixture of people from all sorts of different churches and backgrounds and, and, and things of that nature? Then I would need to preempt some of these statements by saying, listen, before you build your life around a church, you better make sure it's a good church. I mean, you don't just build your life around anything. You don't just say, well, it says church on the sign and it's close to my house and so I'm going to build my life around that. No. So... For the sake of just information, let's just quickly, let me just give you a couple dangers that face the church and things that need to be considered, maybe, uh, or, or just for your own edification. How do you know, how do you know this is a good church? How do you know that? Is it a good church just because you like the people here? Is it a good church just because you feel comfortable here? Is it a good church because you like the color scheme? You like the temperature? You like the Sunday school class? You like the... What? How do you know? Well, here's how you know. First of all, if to ask a question, how do I know it's a good church? Or how do I know it's a biblical church? The first thing you need to say is, is my church gospel-centered? That is the issue. Not, what is my church doing? Don't judge a church by all their activities and all their programs. Don't look at them and say, well, this church, you know, sends out even good things. Even, you know, this church has 50 mission trips a year. Or this church, you know, goes and feeds the homeless 365 days a year. They have, you know, a a, a 100,000 square foot food pantry or they whatever. That doesn't make it a good church. Those are good things. And they're wonderful. But the question is, is it a gospel-centered church? Now, some dangers to consider. The first danger is syncretism. Churches are rampant with syncretism. Syncretism is simply just conforming to what's going on around you. Churches are trying to avoid rejection and embrace acceptance. And therefore, they just begin to look and look and look and look like everything around them. And pretty soon, a lot of churches that might appear on the outside to be very successful are in, in effect really of no... Uh, they've lost their, their, their saltiness. They've lost their light-bearing capacity because basically they're just universalists. Just come as you are. Believe what you wish. We're not going to offend you. We're not going to upset you. We're just going to be nice. And we're going to do good things. That's not where you want to build your life. Because just, just think about what that leads to in your family or with your children. You want to build your life around a gospel-centered church. So syncretism is a danger. Pragmatism is a danger. Pragmatism is simply looking for the latest thing that works. It's always going to the next fad or the next program. You know, it's always, what are we going to do? Usually, pragmatism revolves around all these little gimmicks and things that are going to lead to growth. Now, I'm not opposed to evangelism, obviously. And I'm not opposed to something that is going to grow the church so long as it's gospel-centered. But here's the thing. What grows the church? In other words, if you really think about it, 
Would you be interested in something that's going to grow the church that's outside the gospel? I mean, really? In other words, if it's, if it's evangelistic in nature, well, amen. If it's going to, if it's going to spread the gospel, then that's, that's church growth, spreading the gospel. But you see, pragmatism is always looking for a shortcut, like I talked about this morning. It's always looking for the easy way. It's always, we're going to grow the church in such a way. For example, here's a subtle way that I hear this all the time on the national platform. With churches that would, you know, proclaim themselves to be conservative and gospel-centered. Let's make a church so enticing and so just, you know, wonderful for someone to visit that you don't have to share the gospel with anyone. All you got to do is bring them to church and they'll get saved. That's not in the Bible. See, what it is, it's a shortcut. It's around, see, I don't want to put you, I don't want to put the congregation in the awkward position of having to actually share the gospel with somebody. So what we're going to do is we're going to negate that. All you got to do is invite them. Well, sure, I'm all for inviting people to church. Amen. I want that. Don't misunderstand that. But I also want people to know why you invited them. Because you love them. Because you're concerned for them. Because you want them to be exposed to the truth. You want to share with them. You want to walk with them. You want to lead them to Christ. You want to be a part of what God's doing in their life. I mean, you want to be salt and light to them. You see, the church is not this structure. It's the people. You see? And so the church is where the gospel goes forth. The people. The people. And so certainly people come and they visit and that's wonderful. I mean, we had a couple this morning. They're going to get baptized next Sunday morning together. I mean, how crazy is that? That, I mean, just no church affiliation, no church background. God saves the wife, then God saves the husband, and they just come in. Somebody has been talking to them. I believe it was Dana in our church has been, uh, Ladner has been talking to, uh, been talking to them at, at work and little by little and bit by bit and inviting them to come to things and discussing different things with them and one thing leads to another. And then certainly, you know, they come and they get saved, but there were seeds planted along the way that God used and watered and grew and then boom, the harvest comes. But, but to think, well, you know, if you just come into this building, something magical is going to happen. So it's, it's pragmatism. We need to be careful about that. You know, uh, the, the, the way to, to, to fight pragmatism is just stay gospel-centered in your thinking and just say, okay, are we about spreading the gospel? Are we about training leaders? Are we about sending missionaries? Are we about supporting missionaries? Are we about planting churches? Are we about doing the things that the gospel uh, calls us to do that advance the gospel. You know, Jesus really didn't have a whole lot to say about the church. Now, Paul did. But you know what Jesus spent all this time talking about? Kingdom impact. That's what he talked about. He always brought things back around to kingdom impact. And that's what we need to think about. The other thing that we need to be careful of is nostalgia. We need to be careful that we're not living in the past, longing for some special moment or place in time where we experience something great. This is a big problem in the church of today and in the United States especially. You know, people, people have this tendency to think, well, you know, 
my church has changed. And I guess that means bad when they say that. I don't understand that. I'm thinking, well, good. I mean, that's what churches do. They're alive and they grow and growing things change. What does that mean that it changed? I mean, has it gotten more Christ-like? Now, if it changed and gotten less Christ-like, I mean, what, what's going on? But, but change is natural. I mean, change is to be expected. We shouldn't think that we're not going to change. If you study church history, here's the only thing you're going to figure out. The only constant in church history is change. The church has never, ever stayed the same. It never has. And, and the thing that we lose sight of is that we read, say, in the book of Acts about the first century church, and we totally get that that was then and this is now. But somehow we think that something that we experienced in church at some previous time in our history is this glorious moment that the church needs to go back to and recapture. Why? You see, that's good what happened. It's great what happened. And, and you should remember that. And you should thank God for that. And that should spur us on to more things. But, but we shouldn't want to go back and be that. We should want to be what God wants us to be. And that is gospel-centered. So we, we've got to be careful about this issue of nostalgia because sometimes it can get us into a, a, a tough place. Uh, here's, here's what I wrote. I said, instead of longing for what once was, Pray for God to use what is in the lives of others the way He used what was in our lives. I like that. And I, and I just... Because, you know, I guess I can say that because, I'm, I mean, I'm there, you know? I mean, when you have 18 years of history in the same place, when, when your whole church existence only revolves around one place, you can look back across things and think of all these wonderful moments in time and all these, these great experiences in the Lord and all these things that God did. And I love those and I long for those. But if I'm not careful, I, I find myself suddenly getting caught up in those things and wanting to go back to those things when... That was for that time. And this is for this time. And the gospel is unchanging and it goes forth. But sometimes the things that we experience, we need to understand that God brings those into our lives for a purpose and a reason for a time. Let me give you a great illustration that you're all very, you're all experts on. The transfiguration. I mean, think about it. Here, here's, here's Peter, James, and John on top of the mountain. They see face-to-face the glory of God. And listen, make no mistake about it. Peter says a lot of dumb things, but in that moment, building a tabernacle, I don't think that was a dumb thing. We laugh at that and people mock him for that. But I'm thinking, hey, 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 I want to build a tabernacle there. I mean, if you are in the presence of the glory of God, and then you're just like, okay, well, let's head on back down the mountain. you got a problem. I mean, he wants to stay. He wants to hold this moment. He's thinking, man, let's just build some tents, shack up, and do this forever. And Jesus is making the point in his life, you will, but not now. See, now, this is for a moment, and the moment's over, and now guess what? It's to something else. 
And we're moving forward. And that's what our life is. That's our existence in God. That God uses these momentary experiences in our life to, to develop our faith and to show us His glory and to do wonderful things. But we have to be careful that we're not wanting to build a tabernacle and stay there. Because see, He has other things for us to do. Make no mistake about it. That day will come. And when we get there, we won't have to build a tabernacle. It's already being built. And we'll never have to leave. And we'll be there forever. But until that day comes, God's got work for us to do. Okay, well, that's the introduction. No, I'm just kidding. Second Timothy. Let's look at Second Timothy real fast. Which, I mean, I could do this. Lisa's in the nursery, so I'm not going to get the stink eye. So, hey, just kidding. Second Timothy chapter 1. Real quick, I just want I just want you to see something uh, right out of this uh, dialogue that Paul is having with his dear son in the Lord Timothy about uh, gospel centeredness and and about what this looks like and, and and just some edification for us as his body. Second Timothy chapter one, beginning in verse eight, Paul says, "Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor." of me his prisoner but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us in Jesus Christ before time began but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who has abolished death and brought life and immorality to light through the gospel to which I am appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. Verse 12, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day." This is a gloriously gospel-centered passage. First thing I want you to see is this. We, to be gospel-centered, here's what we need to do. Just a few simple things. We need to resist the enemy's trick of shame. We need to resist that. Now, if you want to know if you're in a gospel-centered church, then you need to perk up and listen closely because in verse 8, here's what Paul says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Now, even a man as godly as Timothy... This, this glorious young man in the Lord with such a wonderful future that Paul has poured himself into, there still is the temptation, the possibility to be ashamed. And it's, it's true for all of us. It's true for me. Listen, if you think that, that there's not temptation to be ashamed of the gospel, you're wrong. Because here's why. Because if I'm ashamed of the gospel, then it's going to work. It's not going to work in God's way and in God's mechanism, but it's going to work in the world's way. You see, if we're defining success by worldly uh, results, then what we're going to do is be more and more consistently ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is just counterintuitive to what the world wants to hear. And so you want to remember that being gospel-centered is not to fall into the trap of being ashamed. See, notice that verse 8 starts with therefore, which clues you in. Back up. And if you back up and read 6 and 7, 
Again, it's therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. You see, where does this fear come from? Where does this, this embarrassment or shame come from? It's the fear of losing money. It's the fear of losing money because you proclaim that you're a Christian at work or that you people won't do business with you. It's the fear of losing respect or acceptance. It's the fear of people rejecting you. It's the fear of people in the natural mind unable to understand what it is that you live for and have devoted your life for. Let's face it, to the natural man, it's ridiculous. And it's embarrassing. Haven't you ever thought this through? Listen, you're, you're in a group full of people. See, here, you know, th- this is the problem with letting ourselves be too isolated. You get out there in the world. I mean, I thank God for so many of you in here. You work in, I mean, the world. I'm talking, man, in the fire. And everyone around you is cussing and talking about what they're watching and all kinds of perverted things. And you hear it all day. And you're thinking, God, why don't you get me out of here? And God's thinking, no, you're right where you need to be shine and here's the thing just think about being in the context of that and think of how ridiculous and embarrassing this sounds well tony what do you do in this situation well um i i just do what the bible says no no no. i mean but what do you think well i just think what the bible says i ought to think to which The world would say, so what you're saying is you really don't have a mind of your own. You're really not capable of thinking an original thought. All you care about is what the Bible says. I mean, what does that say about you? That everything you address in life, you have to pick up this book and find out what it tells you to do so you can do it. That sounds kind of odd. It's embarrassing. Sounds ridiculous. You know, they're not going to go, wow. How amazing that is, is that that you just follow everything that the Bible says. You know, when you start talking to somebody about salvation and you drop the little bomb. See, things are going good when God loves you and he's got a plan for you and all that. But how about when you get to the part about, well, now there is this other part. You know, there is this other part. And I, I do need to let you know that he is the only way. That see, apart from him, there's only hell. He's the only way. There's no other way. And then the person who works with you goes, Now, wait a minute. What about, what about the person that lives in a cave in some remote place where no one's ever been and they don't have electricity? We don't even know they exist. And they, you know, they're like, you know, head shrinkers and cannibals and all that. What if they, what if, what if they don't know about Jesus? Well, they go to hell. Because there's no other way. What? Well, that, that's just... Ridiculous. I mean, I just can't accept that. I just can't buy that. You see, there's a temptation to be ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is not some magnificent thing to the, to the natural mind. It's magnificent to us. I mean, we come in here and thank God and sing glory to God and read the Bible and are so encouraged and so, but listen, To lost people, it's insanity. And so there's temptation to be ashamed for all of us. And a gospel-centered church is going to 
preach the hard things. Teach the hard things. Whatever the Bible says. So if we come up to homosexuality, it's wrong. I don't care what you think. The Bible says it's wrong. I know that's not politically correct. I know they'll be picketing outside. I know that I shouldn't reference Allah in my Sunday morning service. But they're going to hell. It's the way it is. But there's a temptation to just leave that alone. Don't stir up the hornet's nest. Well, you don't go looking for trouble. You just let the gospel dictate where the trouble may come. That's what you got to do. And so, you know, the, the, there is a lot of hard things about the gospel, but it's the gospel. And we don't ever need to be ashamed of it. We need to cling to it. We need to love it. We need to rejoice in the fact that it does. It assaults human pride. It just assaults it. It annihilates human pride. There's no, that when you, when you come into the, the presence of the gospel, when your mind is enlightened to what the gospel is, there's no room in there for pride. See, I'm, I'm convinced that the reason why so many people don't share the gospel who are supposedly born again believers is because they don't understand the gospel. So they don't share it. But listen, if you understand it, if you know what it is, you realize that, you know, it's, it's not what the natural man wants to hear. But it's the only thing that will save him. And so we, we don't be ashamed of it. All right, I'm really fast now. Embrace suffering. See, there's a great temptation to just proclaim this sort of muted gospel that somehow if you become a believer, all your problems are going to go away. You see, if somebody tries to tell you that becoming a, a believer, somehow the gospel is going to lessen your physical suffering or it's going to increase your financial gain, that's not the gospel. See, a gospel-centered church has to embrace suffering. We need to give God all the glory and praise for the, the healings that He does and for the, the, the restoration that He accomplishes, but we also need to praise Him in death. We need to praise Him. We need to give Him glory. We need to embrace the suffering for whatever it is and know that God always knows best. And, and, and not, don't run away from that. Paul says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share with me in the suffering of the gospel. Here's a man who is incarcerated who is sentenced to death. He knows that in just a few short weeks, maybe months, he's going to be decapitated. And he's saying, look, I'm in prison. I'm a laughingstock. People would say, why would I ever listen to you? You're sitting in a prison cell. And yet the gospel says, no, that's where the power is. Is that, you know, listen, it, it's not, there, there, is no, uh, there is no getting away from suffering. If you live for the gospel and proclaim the gospel, it's going to bring suffering. And so in order to be gospel-centered, you have to embrace that. Embrace it. Thirdly, we need to be diligent and to identify and articulate the content of the gospel. And, oh, I could preach a sermon on this, but I'm not. In verse 9, here's what the Bible says. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purposes and grace, which is given to us in Jesus Christ before time began. But listen, but now has been revealed by the appearing of the Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immorality to light through the gospel. You, you see the, the content of the gospel there in verses 9 and 10? Now, let, let me show you what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is, is that there's a lot of tendency today 
if you listen closely, what you'll hear out there in the church world is to mingle things into the gospel that are great and wonderful things, but they're not the gospel. You've got to differentiate what is the content of the gospel and what is the consequences of the gospel, okay? And so, for example, uh, reconciliation to one another is a beautiful thing, but it's not the gospel. Serving the poor is a wonderful thing, but it's not the gospel. You see, these are wonderful consequences of the gospel, but they're not in and of themselves the gospel. And what happens is people get off track, off center, and they begin to put other things in the content of the gospel that don't belong there. So you got to be careful that you're not putting consequences in the context box. The gospel is... And only is salvation through Jesus Christ who came and died and rose again. The, the, look, Paul says he did what? He abolished death. And you say, well, no. Well, we die. Well, no. We don't taste death. We, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You know, we're not, we don't die. We don't fear death. We'll live forever. We're going to be uh, with him in heaven forever. He's destroyed and defeated the enemy. And so... That's what the gospel is. It's not the the outward workings of what happens once you receive the gospel. Those are good and wonderful things, but they don't in and of themselves save. So when we do those good things, we need to make sure that the gospel is in those things. You with me? It's important. It's very important. And lastly, we need to be rooted And I mean rooted and grounded and built in relationship. Uh, It's it's an intimate relationship with Jesus. That's what gospel-centered is. Paul says in verse 12, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom. That is such a beautiful word. He doesn't say, I know what. He says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep. We need to remember that it's a who. Not a what. It's a person. It's a relationship. That it's not a plan. It's not a program. It's a person. It's a personal relationship. Gospel-centeredness is always built around the relationship with Jesus. And so, back to where we started. You think back through the testimony that I read to you of Miss Louise. And you think about how... What you hear in there is you hear her talking about at all these random different stages of her life, the church would rise up and meet her needs and and serve her and care for her. But here's what you, here's what if you look deep beneath that, what you see is through that, you know what God's doing? He's developing a relationship with her through the church. And that everywhere she goes, you see, it's why when she, for example, moves to New Orleans as a 19-year-old who doesn't know anybody in a very scary city and the church reaches out to her so that she says, wow, the church loves me. Jesus loves you through the church. That's Jesus saying, I love you. I'm watching over you. I'm caring for you. I got this. It's a relationship. It's meant to build relationship. And so Paul makes that very clear. I know whom I believed in. Oh, that's so important. So wonderful. So I hope that just this discussion that we've had over, you know, two Sunday nights has been something that's kind of got your wheels turning and and gives you something to think about. I mean, the church is such a glorious thing. And it's so easy for us to take things for granted and and to just, I guess, just, you know, begin to think about 
ourselves or begin to think about, you know, our wants or our desires. I mean, all of us do. And there's a temptation sometimes to to just uh, either to resist change uh, because we don't we don't like change or to embrace change just for the sake of change. And all of that's wrong. Here's the thing. Jesus is the head. He places each one as it's pleasing unto him. And boy, if we just got that, do you, can you just think about what that would, just that one truth, do you know what would happen? If we just got that one truth. First thing that would happen is, there would be no more slander and gossip between brothers and sisters in Christ. None. It would eradicate immediately if we got that God places each one here as it pleases Him. There would be no more of that coarse talking. There would no, be no more backstabbing and gossiping. And guess what else would happen? You'd see this unbelievable transformation in the servitude of God's people in the stewardship of what God has given them as pertains to the local church. And here's why. Because first of all, if you believe with all your heart, which I'm assuming you do, but if we as a body, if, if this morning, the however many hundreds of people that were in here, if all believed that God places each one here as is pleasing unto Him, then here's what would happen. First of all, Wherever you have been called to serve, you see, there's lots of service places that you're not called to serve in. I understand that. You know, we serve in places just because we're servants. You know, we just do things to help. But when you're called to serve somewhere, you can't just uncall yourself. You can't just decide... I'm not doing this. You can't just come and say, well, I've got this gift and I've got this ability. I could do that, but I don't feel like it or I don't have time or I don't... In other words, if we understood that, here's what I'm saying. It it seems to me through my study of Scripture, it seems to me that if we understood that, here's what would, would happen. We would literally be crawling over each other for opportunities to serve. That the biggest problem we'd have is we simply... I would be meeting with the deacons going, Guys, we got a problem. I need more jobs. Can you find some more things to do? That's what would happen. That's what would happen. God put you here because it pleased Him. Him. It's all about Him. And boy, when a body grabs a hold of that, you see, then, then I don't have to scream at everybody to love each other. It just, see, it just happens. Wait a minute, I'm here because God put me here. Which means Kelly's here because God put her here. Which means Joe's here because God put him here. And so on and so forth. And then so it's, everything changes. Wow, look what you did, God. Look what you did. Look what you did. Thank you. You put me here too. What do you have for us to accomplish in you, Lord? What would that look like? Oh, I sure want to see it. I want to see it.